Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills. I'm Dr. Bob Lawrence. It's time to discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Today is Team Tuesday. Yes, you heard me correctly. Today is Team Tuesday. I am thrilled to introduce this new segment to the Jazz Piano Skills community. As all of my regular listeners know that every Tuesday, when a new Jazz Piano Skills episode is published, it will be an episode focusing on either theory study, technique application, transcription analysis, or the learning of a tune. Now, a new segment is added to the rotation, Team Tuesday. On Team Tuesday, I am joined by another prominent jazz pianist and educator to discuss the various aspects of teaching and learning jazz piano. And of course, the audio version of the show is free for everyone to enjoy and is available through all of the popular podcast directories, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, Pandora, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and so on. Additionally, however, Jazz Piano Skills members can enjoy watching a video of the interview, which can be found on the Jazz Piano Skills website. There is no better way to introduce this new and exciting segment than with my special guest today. I am ecstatic to welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, jazz pianist, composer, author, and educator, Jeremy Siskin. Jeremy Siskin, what a pleasure to have you on Jazz Piano Skills. Thank you, man. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> oh, listen, this is a brand new segment that uh, I am starting on the Jazz Piano Skills podcast where I invite a, a jazz pianist like yourself, an accomplished jazz pianist, but also an accomplished jazz educator, um, which is tough to find. That combination is not easy. And uh, mm -hmm. so you are actually kicking things off with this whole segment. You are the very first one, man. So it's all uphill from here. Or <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, something. Something, right? So, um, look, what we're going to do today is we're going to share with the listeners of Jazz Piano Skills kind of our insights and experiences as jazz pianists, as jazz educators, and as students, right? I mean, I yeah. imagine you're like me in that you still consider yourself a student. Oh, right. indeed. And I, I literally just signed up for some lessons uh, these past couple of months for the first time in years to actually <laughs> like formally study. So I'm literally a student. <laughs> so, you know, and that's so fantastic, I think, for listeners to hear that here you are, an, a monster player, uh, signing up to study and take lessons and continue to dig deeper and to improve your skills. How amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I we're going to cover four categories, you know, on the, on the podcast, I always, I kind of have a rotational uh, lineup that I utilize on a week to week basis. 
you know, one week we'll be, I'll, I'll address a theory concept with, um, with the podcast. The next week it might be technique. The next week transcriptions. The next week tune study. And uh, so what I thought we would do is just kind of take each one of those broad categories and kind of share our thoughts with one another and with the, with the listeners uh, on, on uh, our, our, our experiences in each one of these categories, in each one of these areas. So I thought we'd start off with music theory, jazz theory. And the, the very first thing I will say is, man, there's a lot of confusion about music theory and jazz theory and from a student perspective with regards uh with regards to its purpose and application as a player so i guess my first question for you when it comes to music theory in jazz in jazz theory specifically how do you approach that with students how much emphasis do you place upon it and how do you approach uh teaching jazz theory to students that's a great question um I have a love-hate relationship with teaching theory. So I love theory, um, personally. Uh, I got a double major in college. One of the majors was music theory um, because I just love this idea of when you hear something that you love and you want to make it a part of your own musical vocabulary, you want to go in, dive deep, figure out what's going on, and then figure out as many different ways to output it as possible. Right. And it could be something as simple as somebody's using a flat nine over a dominant chord. And I did the analysis, pretty simple analysis. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to take every dominant chord and I'm going to use every flat nine that I can find. It could be something more complicated. It could be, you know, a wild substitution or, you know, some sort of a crazy voicing and figuring out how that all relates. Um, but for me, that's the exciting thing about theory um, and how, why, why it's really essential for anybody creative is, you know, what we want to do is A, imitate and then B, build on that imitation right. and yeah. find new avenues. Right. Now, I think I, I started by saying that I have a love-hate relationship with theory because I feel like for many students, theory can be the end point. Um, right. You know, I learned the scale and therefore I know how to improvise on this chord. Um, and that's not really healthy or the, um, the goal, right? Theory is a means to an end. Correct. Um, and the end is usually more engaged with the ear and what you're hearing in your inner ear. Right. So um, for me, theory is often kind of times, uh, I imagine as like a scaffolding <laughs> that you want to kind of build it up. And then eventually you don't want to think about that theory. You don't want to be thinking about right. your major scale when you're playing a major chord. You want to be able to hear it and engage with that inner ear. But at some point you need to have been told or have figured out what the notes are. So theory is kind of this scaffolding for me that I try to build up with my students. And yes. then some, some students have a strong ear, barely need it, right? You know, they'll be able to hear that scale very quickly. Some students who ear might not be their strength, they're going to need to rely on that theory for quite a while until right. their ear rises to that point. Right. Um, of being able to process it. So um, I don't think any of us want to think about theory when we're playing. Um, but in order to get us to a point where we're learning something new, where we're hearing something new, where we're taking something from a piece we love, whether it's a transcription or, um, you know, I've done a lot of work analyzing classical music um, and then 
imitating, oh, what's Debussy doing here? What's Bach doing here to make this work? It's all the same instrument, Correct. you know, so why not steal from those masters as well? Correct. Um, and then how can I incorporate, you know, how can I use what Debussy did in Autumn Leaves, in On Green Dolphin Street, right. you know, any of these tunes. So yeah. that's kind of a, a very, you know, painting with a broad brush. That's how I think of theory. Right. I don't want to rely on it, um, but it can be that booster that you get up to the next level until it's something that's really internalized in a deep way. Yes, you know, you, 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 it, that's interesting. You're, you're spot on. You know, in fact, when I teach theory, I often teach theory without using the word theory. You know, mm. um, I like to back into it, in other words. You know, for instance, I'll give you an example. I, uh, because what happens is students get wrapped around language a lot. They get caught up mm. in, in, the, in the fancy language. Like, oh, you know, uh, they'll, they'll come into a lesson. They'll go, hey, I'm, I'm supposed to, I, I read somewhere that I'm supposed to study modes. And so they hear the word like modes and they think, well, that's really, you know, highbrow stuff. That's really that's like the top of the mountain. I got to, you know, I got to, I got to study modes. And so they get wrapped around all this jargon. Uh, and, and like you said, the end is much, is much hipper to get to than getting wrapped around all that jargon and getting tied up and not. So I kind of like to back into it. So, you know, using modes as an example, I'll teach, I'll teach students. I'll say, well, here's, here's a C dominant scale. I, I don't introduce it. I don't introduce it as mixolydian. I don't introduce it as the, you know, C is the, the the fifth of F major, so it's the F major scale starting on C. I mean, now their heads spinning around, and and they're trying to go, whoa, how am I going to process all that? So, I tend mm -hmm. to focus on shapes and sounds, uh, teaching shapes and sounds to students, and then using theory as a way to explain or justify why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's this problem that I think we all have as teachers of music and as j of jazz in general, that there's these different skill sets that you need, right? You need to know theory, you need to have good skills at the instrument, um, right. you need to have a good ear, you need to know about history and narrative, you need to have all of these things. And some are actually easier to teach and learn than others, right? right. It's very hard right. to teach somebody about narrative. And then, right. especially, you know, I teach in an academic setting to give a test on how well are you able to tell a story with a solo. <laughs> That's such an unquantifiable thing. You're never going to know that. Or having an individual sound, right? right. I mean, like, who knows? Right. Uh, I have right. no idea how to grade somebody on whether they have an individual sound yeah. on the instrument. Yeah, but theory luck, is one right? of those things that's very easy to just say, okay, you got to learn your modes. Um, and so one of the traps that I know that I fall into as a teacher, and I, I'm trying to do better all the time, is to not teach the things that are easy to teach and check that box off. Okay, this student knows all their modes, great. Um, but they still can't play, you know, they, they, they're not hearing it, they're not actually engaging in it. Right. And it's, uh, I tend to teach a lot of students who come from a classical background. And, you know, a lot of people, especially high achievers, are oriented in like, okay, I need to check off the box of, I know this thing, I need to have accomplished this exact task this week. And so things like learning a lick in all 12 keys, things like making sure that you know your modes, these are easy things to check the box of. But, you know, really knowing something stylistically or really, you know, knowing your way through that scale or hearing a passage, those are so much more difficult to teach and to learn. And then no the teachers who can do that, I just admire them so much. 
Um, right. But it takes a lot of discipline to be able to tell your students, okay, we could learn the name of that thing and we could, you know, could do a theory exercise, but actually it's not really the most essential thing that you need, especially when students come in and they've watched some YouTube tutorial and they said, I heard that we were supposed to use the bebop scale, you know, Correct. from this. And it's like, okay, that's, that's good information, but it's not actually speaking a language. It's not actually, um, you know, getting you to a place where you're going to be telling a story and making, you know, some an individual statement of any kind. Yeah, well, and you bring up, you touch upon another topic uh, I want to discuss real quick, you know, just the abundance of information that now is available to to people and to students, right? You know, I actually have to ban students from YouTube. <laughs> Do you really? Stop going, yeah, I go, just that you're banned from YouTube, man. Just stop looking at, you know, cause, <laughs> because now there's so much information that's floating around out there, not just in any, in any area, right? Not just, not just jazz mm -hmm, and jazz piano. I mean, you can go health and fitness and I mean, there's so much information that's out there. And, and so how do you, how do you safeguard students? How do you teach students to know how to be able to assess when they're actually touching upon or discovering something that's legit when it comes to jazz theory and something that is like a little whacked. How do you, you know, address I, that? I, I don't know if I have a great answer to that question, honestly. Yeah. Um, my, I, 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 I'm going to kind of dodge that question and say that my, <laughs> my, my, bigger, my bigger concern, I, you know, I guess I'm not against like, I, I'm not somebody who's going to say, don't do this, don't look at this, don't listen to this person. Right. But my biggest concern is making sure that they get to the good information because there's right. so many, yes. uh, there's so much other stuff that instead of spending their time listening to Oscar Peterson, Bill Evans, Thelonious Monk, Hank Jones, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, et cetera, et cetera. They're watching a YouTube tutorial by a guy who may or may not really know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I don't think any of that input is necessarily bad. I don't see a ton of, like, damaging videos out there. But right. my main concern is, like, how many solos can you sing? <laughs> right. If you can't sing any solos on the spot... It, nothing much is going to happen for you. You can watch YouTube tutorials all day. You Correct. can you know, right. know all those things, but it's like, it's to me, it's the balance of depth and breadth. And it's right. so easy to pursue breadth because there's so much out there. You know, they can watch Jacob Collier videos about the negative harmony, which I still don't honestly understand. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, you can't sing a single solo and it's like, well, you're not really learning anything. You might think that you're an expert because you watch all these videos, but you, you're not doing anything yeah. with any. Yeah. You're so I guess mo you're more than saying no to, to stuff, it's more like you got to put your time into the, the real stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a great answer, you know, and, and um, you, you're, you're actually talking about actually doing more listening. D d do a lot of listening, right? You just mentioned about being able to sing solos, right? I, we all have those albums that we grew up, you know, uh, you know, different albums that we've listened to throughout our lives that you could literally just, you don't even need the album anymore. <laughs> you can just drive along in your car and sing the solos, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a great bit of advice, you know, to um, point, always be pointing to the good stuff. Right. And, and you know, quite honestly, like you also bring up a really uh, valid point too. You know, I used to have a teacher that used to say to me all the time, used to say, Bob, you, you can learn something from everyone. 
Mm. You can <laughs> learn something from everyone. No doubt. I think that's really that's really good advice. You know, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not against people learning from other sources. You know, when they're my yeah. student, by by all means, taking some information, right. but. Right. Again, as long as you're pursuing some things with a real high level of depth, like I'll, I'll give you the example that I, I told you, I've, I've been taking lessons. Um, hopefully it's not weird to, um, to say I've been taking lessons from Gerald Clayton. He's one of my favorite pianists, uh, just, you know, a total, I think, beast awesome. of modern, modern music. Awesome. Um, and uh, first week we were working on playing at slow tempos. He had me transcribe this Oscar Peterson solo. And I'm, I'm kind of a... Uh, brown noser go-getter as a student so I transcribed the left hand and the right hand I learned it exactly with the recording and I was like feeling really good about myself and I, I sent him a copy of the transcription and it was like and killed it at the last you know and so this is great but I wonder if you spend enough time with the solo before you put it down into writing um, oh. or did you did you just you know kind of go and write it down from the recording and I had to admit that I kind of I went right to it and I was like, I'm going to impress him. And I wrote it right down. And he said, well, you know, that's good, but I don't know if you learned it with as much depth as if you had, you know, really spent that time so that you could play it without even writing it down. And so the next week yeah. I learned a Chick Corea solo without writing it down. And I'll tell you, you know, in total honesty, I know that second solo way better than I know that first one. And it was way harder and took way more time. But yeah, that's, the that's accomplishment, the reward that I'm getting from it is so much greater. So even I um, am guilty, you know, I mean, we're all, we could all always do better, but you know, oh, even from, whatever, from whatever position of, you know, high stature I'm in, um, I got called out for not going into enough depth on my assignment. And that was a great lesson for me. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah. let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about technique, right? Okay. You know, everyone everyone gets uh, gets after it. You know, practicing scales, practicing arpeggios. But let share with the listeners how you practice scales, how you practice arpeggios, how you take those exercises, and how do those get translated into vocabulary for you. Um, yeah, good question. And the answer is that it's constantly, for me at least, it's constantly changing. And, you know, scales are just one of those things that they're always a part of your practice routine. And you can always figure out a different way to practice them. Um, and they're always going to be useful and you can never know them well enough. <laughs> um, so there's true. always other scales, there's always other rhythms, other patterns. Um, and so... You know, I'm more than saying that there's a particular way that you should be practicing scales. I'm just a big advocate for always finding something that pushes you uh, to a new level with practicing scales. If you're bored of playing them uh, up and down, of course, play them in all the different intervals. Play them in thirds, play them in fourths, play them in fifths. Um, you know, play them in, uh, block them out in triads and see how fast you can play them blocked out in triads. Play them in ascending fourths. Um, you know, play the melodic minor, play them in five tuplets. Uh, there's just no end to that practice. Um, and for me, it's honestly, it's something that kind of fugues throughout my life. Sometimes I'm, I, I right. remind myself that I really need to get into scales and I have some exercise that really excites me. Um, for a while, I was working really hard on playing them in tenths and getting that really solid. And then for a while, you know, I don't have time or I, I get off of scales and then I come back to them. Um, right. 
for a lot of my students, in addition to scales, I'm just a big fan of having them learn bebop melodies or bebop solos. Um, because, you know, for me, bebop is kind of the standard language of jazz. Right. No matter right. what, you know, no matter whether you want to play an earlier style or a later standard style, understanding bebop is just kind of essential. So um, getting those sorts of things under your fingers to me are like kind of as essential as playing scale. So, you know, I love having them play the, the Bud Powell heads like Celia, yeah. like Bouncing with yeah. Bud, of course, all the Charlie Parker heads, your anthropology, your confirmation, just to get used to spreading your hands in different ways. Um, and the kind of turns that take place that, um, especially, like I said, I do a lot of teaching of classical musicians who start playing jazz and they're not used to, uh, kind of these weird leaps and then descending and ascending and then leaping right. a seventh and then coming back. Um, so to get their hands just used to talking that way, I think is really useful. Yeah. And I kind of consider that an essential part of practice like scales. Yeah. So just playing the heads, right? Just playing Absolutely. the heads of those tones. Yeah, you know, I mean, the solos are great too, but the heads are the things that the people, you know, said, this is good enough that I want to make it a tune. So, like, heck, spend time with that. And then you're doing double duty. You've learned a tune too. Right. Uh, you know, right. so I, I'm all for learning as many bebop heads as possible. Yeah, because, I mean, there's just a, that's a treasure of, that's a treasure in and of itself. Just playing those heads just teach you so much about the, the vocabulary, about the lines. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <clears throat> so, and they're hard. They're, they're good exercises, you know, in terms of getting loose. Um, I was using as a warm-up, uh, if, if I can demonstrate, um, I've been yes, doing this, this stupid thing with mirror piano, which is where you kind of have the two hands playing symmetrically. So for, for quite a while, my, my big warm-up was playing Donnelly. So with the left hand mirroring, and then the left hand playing the melody with the right hand mirroring. different way than scale <laughs> i have to spread yeah, my hands um oh my god the other thing that i i like doing is i have a few etudes and you know shame on me i haven't updated in in a couple of years but i have a few etudes i, I really like six six really get me working between the fourth and the fifth finger because that's one thing that scales right. don't do when you warm up there's basically no fifth finger in your scales right so i i have right. some chopin and debussy etudes <laughs> fourth and fifth finger working. And I'm sure if any classical pianist heard me do that, they'd, you know, hang their head in shame because uh, I'm, I'm no classical player. Um, but, you know, it just, it helps get me warm and it helps get the, the blood flowing. So um, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big believer, especially, you know, among modern jazz pianists, you know, uh, so many of them have studied classical piano in depth. Um, and I'm a big right. believer that, you know, if you want to be a really high level jazz pianist, some amount of classical study is, is definitely right. um, advantageous. You, you, you've published some etudes, have you not? I, I wrote a book of perpetual motion etudes, which is a style. That's I, what I, I thought. How, through Hal Leonard? Um, that book actually yeah. is self-published. Uh, oh, I, I have other books for... Where do, they get, where, where do they get that? On, on your website? On my website or on Amazon. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. That's awesome. Okay, so let's shift gears just a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think we left theory a little while ago. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We're in the we're, we're in the technique, dude. We're in the oh, technique. Cool. Okay, so, I didn't even notice. So, uh, 
Yeah, because it all kind of runs together, right? It does, it does. So harmonic skills. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but students have a lot of questions and are struggle quite a bit with learning voicings, how mm -hmm. to voice sound. How did you go about, think back to when you were a child, when you were developing and learning, when did voicings start to make sense to you how to voice and uh, what 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 was the tipping point for you? What helped you kind of be able to get your wrap your mind, your hands, and your ears around how to voice as a jazz pianist? Um, it's really hard to remember back that far now that I as old <laughs> as I am. But I, I I mean I could tell you I started taking jazz lessons from a really great teacher named, named Linda Martinez when I was thirteen or fourteen years old, and uh, I I feel like I teach pretty much what she taught me, and I like to start voicing very formulaically. Um, I, yes. you know, I teach thirds and sevenths in the left hand, fifth and ninth in the right hand. Um, and, you know, for me, if scales and etudes are the first part of a practice session, probably going through two five ones is the second part of a practice session. And it takes a ton of muscle memory. And, um, and then you work on tunes and, you know, the first month, you're probably gonna have to write out all your voicings for all the tunes. Um, and this is one thing that I, I'm always frustrated with students, if I'm being honest. Um, to me, it's really important at the beginning to write everything out. Um, because... Yeah, I, the, I call it paper practice. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, the balance between what thinking of what you have to play and then actually executing it, that's a lot to do right. at the same time. So at first you have to separate. So the first 10 tunes you learn good voicings for, you know, you probably want to write them all out and then practice them to get them under your hands and into muscle memory. And then you right, want to get a right. real book or a fake book and open it, open it up to a random page every day and go through the tune 10 times until you can kind of get it in time with the voicings without writing them down. Um, but honestly, then the best thing that you can do is to find some stupid gig that you're playing for two to three hours every week, or if not a gig, just a jam session or a school band um, where you're finding the voicings because it takes a massive amount of repetition, right? It's like a language learning skill. But in addition to learning the language, you have to be able to execute it on the keyboard, right? That's exactly um, right. That's exactly right. So you just have to do it over and over and over. And if you can't find anybody to play with, put on your favorite record and play along with them as though they were your friends, <laughs> as though they were your band, right? I spent a lot of time doing that, just playing, you know, okay, Autumn Leaves. I'm gonna turn on the Cannonball Adderley recording of Autumn Leaves. It's about eight minutes. I'm gonna do it five times. 40 minutes of practice just playing those same voicings. And by the way, while you're doing that, you're going to pick up a bunch of things about style, um, right? You're going to be able to listen to how Hank Jones is comping and be like, oh, I want to kind of try that rhythm. And then you're going to be able to listen to, you know, the Art Blakey's uh, ride cymbal pattern and latch onto that. So um, you're, you know, you've got to spend some time playing. I, I have a student who's a really talented classical pianist and is trying to get into jazz and she's got a lot of frustration and I think she, you know, is having a hard time bridging the theoretical concepts with actually doing it. And I, I've been telling her that, you know, it's like if you're learning to drive, you can talk about driving all day, but where you're actually right. going to gain skills is right. behind the wheel. And so, yeah, you right. know, it's particularly hard right now when we're all kind of quarantined, we can't really play in bands. But I told her, like, you got to just put on albums and play for 45 minutes a day. So that you're getting that right. time behind the wheel because there's just no replacing right. that. You could talk about it. We can theorize. We can, 
um, make plans, but until you're behind that wheel, you're not going to figure out how to drive. Well, that's right. You know, I, I say that same thing about, you know, time and you, you, you can't teach time. You can't teach feel. We can talk about it, but you have you have to experience it in order to develop it. Absolutely. You know? And and like 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 you said, the the best way to experience it when I grew up playing, I mean, the only way to experience when I grew up was to go to the jam session. You, yeah. You'd actually go to a jam session and sit in and play, and you'd find out real quick how good your time is. Yeah. <laughs> your sense of time and your sense of feel and articulation, you'd find out really quick, right? But playing with the albums is a great way to do that as well. It's fantastic. Um, so along those lines, rhythmic skills. Do you have any specific rhythmic exercises that you do with students that you have them do to develop rhythmic skills? Um, I mean, so comping, I start them off with some basic comping patterns. Um, and okay. before I kind of throw them into the fire doing them with tunes, I have them do, it, uh, do the comping patterns against scales. Um, and I'll, I'll give you just a quick overview if you want. You know, the, the first thing that we do yes. is Charleston and reverse Charleston. So um, Charleston being. Yes. And reverse Charleston being two, three, four. Right. Um, and what's been interesting is I had them also do the scales with triplets so that they really have to know how that swing feel works, right? I'm scared, right. to, I'm scared to demonstrate this, but let's see how it goes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or... Yeah. Right? Um, so we did a bunch of that, um, and then trying to get them to do those two comping patterns with a, against a simple melody, whether that's a Take the A Train or a Satin right. Doll. Right, um, right. And then also what I call the Red Garland comping pattern, which is the end of two and the end of four anticipations. So, right. Right. And then getting that against tunes. And then from there, I have them do what I call push-offs, which are adding um, downbeats to those offbeats. So, one, two, three. Nice making sure that they get that articulation right because it's it's hard for people to stay yeah. in the key um, and really get that oh, yes. um, legato to staccato. So um, those are a couple of rhythmic exercises I, I do. And, you know, something else that I've become really interested in is how uh, pianists start and end phrases. Because um, especially when people don't have a great sense of jazz style, they tend to start and end everything on downbeats. Um, Correct. So I've done a lot of exercises you know, starting people with a simple rhythm. Maybe it's just one and. So one, two, and then you got a solo on a whole tune just using one and. So if it's on a blues, two, three, four. Right, and then add the and of four to that. You know, and once they get that, that you can add one and two and. So we're always practicing ending on that and with a little, I call it a little bit of a sting or a do dit, you know. Right, and then if they have those two, then let's practice alternating.
we're starting to build rhythmic vocabulary. This is something I'm passionate about that, you know, we talk about maybe building a vocabulary of licks or building a vocabulary of scales, but we also need to have a rhythmic vocabulary. People kind of take rhythm for granted. Like, oh, of course I know rhythm. Um, but it's kind of like, a yeah, it gets shoved off to the side. Right. right. But just like anything else, you have to have a vocabulary of rhythms that, you know, sound good. And also for a lot of students, articulation is really tough. And so you need to know how to articulate those rhythms correctly. Um, in the side. Right. Um, the other thing, the other thing you were doing there, which is so important to get students to do, you were singing those rhythms. Yeah, I, I, I do that playing. subconsciously. <laughs> I, I forget that I'm doing it. Um, not, but you're, but right, the hands have to take dictation. It's coming from somewhere, and so getting students to sing. You know, I'm always trying to encourage, I'm, I'm encouraging students to do that. I'm going like, look, we're not, you're not trying to be Luciano Pavarotti <laughs> here. This is not about singing. Like, you know, this is about articulating those rhythms correctly. Right. Yeah. That's always a tough one because so many students are very reticent to sing. And then it, it always comes to the question of, okay, are you singing what you're playing or are you playing what you're singing? And, you know, that's <laughs> a hard one to, con it's a hard one to control. You know, right, you want it right. to be, of course, coming from the inner ear to the hands. But I think for a lot Correct. of students, you might say, well, you should sing along. They're just going to sing what they're playing. So it's, it's a tough one um, to get. Very and I think there's a lot of groundwork that has to be done before just expecting a student to yeah. be able to play what they sing and have those two things like really align. I, I don't have all yeah. the answers there, um, but I think you're right that the goal should be, you know, to have something come from the inner ear through the body and the hands. Yeah, the... some, something's coming from inside. It's inside yeah, out. We're absolutely. And I think there's a lot of scaffolding between right. theory and these rhythms that has to be Correct. done before, you know, a student's going to get it. But uh, that's the job. That's the gig. <laughs> All right, man. How about oral skills? You know, the ear. The answer is you know, yes. Hearing sounds, <laughs> harmonic function. Yeah. What do you, what do, you do, man? Um, it's funny. So I, I, I'm the worst person to ask about this in a lot of ways because I, I had perfect pitch for as long as I can remember. And so, you know, I've had students come to me and say, wow, you have such a great ear. Tell me about your ear training regimen. I say, I never did one. <laughs> I never did anything. So, you know, in a lot of ways, yeah. I'm actually the least qualified person. I think uh, singing solos, you know, uh, is paramount. Um, I think being able to sing the roots of tunes is paramount. You know, singing yeah. is the best way to gauge whether your ear is doing the right thing, right? There's not a really great way. There's not a really great other way to gauge. Um, I don't know if you know about this. I believe it's David Baker's transcription method, although it's come down to me through some different folks. But the me right, method right. Is, is basically that you listen to a solo until you can sing it. And then you write it down away from your instrument, right? And Boy, right. you have to yes, know, right. your right. ear has to be so good and so connected to do that. And then you go to your instrument and you see how you did. Valid. Um, right. And I think that that's a really great test um, because so many people transcribe and it's just trial and error, right? They'll hear a note and they'll, okay, yeah, it was an F, right? Um, so I think spending that time away from the instrument really figuring out, do I know how a major six sounds different than a minor six? I'm like totally confident in that. I think that's, you know, really, really essential. And then the other element, um, which I'm always trying to preach to my students, and of course it's one of those things that's easier to tell people they should do than to actually 
you know, teach them to do is to hear ahead in the tune. Because I hear so many uh, younger musicians and college age musicians who play pretty well, but it's always in response to the harmony. And they always sound like they're late. Um, Instead of, let's lead you to that third. Let's lead you to that next sound. Um, And also, let's hear where there's a dissonance that needs to be resolved. Um, So really listening to that, you know, how is the harmony moving? How does it relate to that melody line? Um, So some things that help are being able to sing guide tones uh, to pieces, right? Being able to hear resolutions. Um, But like I said, I, I wish, you know... I'm sure there's somebody who has like an amazing ear training regiment that taught them to do something. I can't share anything like that with you. Um, But those are the things that I've heard that, that seem to work really well for people. So, so with tunes though, how, when you learn a tune, how, how does harmonic function play into that for you with the, I mean, you're hearing one going to six, going to two, going to five, you're hearing harmonic motion, Correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, so do you spend time with students trying to get them to hear harmonic motion? Like, oh, that's a two chord going to a five chord, going to a one chord. They may not have the perfect pitch, mm-hmm. right? Like you, they may not be able to say, oh, I'm that's in the key of C, so that's a D minor going to a G7. But they would be able to say to you, oh, that's a two, I, I'm hearing two, five, one there. Oh, I'm hearing rhythm changes, I mean, right? Yeah, that, that's a level that we want students to get to for sure. You know, tune learning goes so slow at first. But once you figure right. out, you know, both how these, uh, how these common progressions sound, how they feel, yes. how they kind of function, right. tune learning can go right. very fast, right? right? Um, and right. I, I know it's a frustration of a lot of students that there's so many tunes to learn and it takes so long to really process one, much less learn how to transpose it or right. anything like that. So, yeah, we do want to get our students to that level where um, they're not like really laboring through learning those tunes. And I, I think right. you're absolutely right that um, that figuring out those really common progressions is uh, is the way to go. Yeah. Um, understanding those relationships you know I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story when i was just a, when i was a kid i was maybe i don't know 14 15 years old and i said to this old jazzer that was playing in town he was a really very fine jazz pianist and he you know i'm sitting there watching he could play any tune any key mm-hmm. any way you wanted it you know singers were coming up all the time requesting tunes but always in different keys and he'd play them and i i asked him one time i said uh man, how do you know so many tunes? I said, I've never seen you not be able mm-hmm. to play a tune, to play any requested tune in any key. How is it that you know so many tunes? And he looked at me. He was an old crusty guy at uh-huh. this time, and I'm just a kid, right? And he looked at me like I was asking him the dumbest <laughs> question on the face of planet Earth. And he looked at me, he took his little cigar out of his mouth, and he went, he goes, what are you talking about? He said, now check this out. So what he said, he goes, what are you talking about? They're all the same. <laughs> and as a kid, I was going like, what the heck's yeah, he talking yeah. about? He's wacky, he's, he's wacky, right? You know, Misty's not the same as San Francisco, is not the same as Autumn Leaves, is not the same, right? But then, you know, 35, 40 years later, I know exactly mm-hmm. what he's talking about. He's hearing, you know, 251 is 251. <laughs> right? So he's hearing... 
he's hearing all those tunes. He's hearing those relationships. He's hearing those common, that common motion, those patterns. So, so much so that he thinks they're what? All the You're same. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty high, that, that's a pretty high level of musical yeah, thinking. For sure. Yeah. I have a few, few thoughts on that. <laughs> um, one um, is just like an old person rant against iReal Pro. As useful as it is, it's become such an incredible crush. Um, and yes. one of the best pieces of advice I got, I got from John Clayton, uh, the great bass player in high school. And he said, burn your real book. If you have this thing yeah, to right. look towards, you're never really going to right. be engaging with the music, right? Um, the more we're using our Correct. eyes, the less we're using our ears. And I just know so That's many exactly right. you know, professional level musicians, college level musicians, who barely know any tunes because they're on iReal Pro. And the great musicians that right. I know, um, and I've tried this a couple of times with mixed, mixed, mixed success. If they're on a bandstand and somebody calls a tune they don't know, um, I've done this. I'll just say, oh, I, I know that. And then I'll listen for one chorus and then I'll play it after that, right? Because um, that's what you want to be able to do. You want to just be able to listen once through and more or less get it. You're maybe not going to get the details of a really hard tune. You know, you got to be careful what you're faking. Um, right. Two, two more things. Right. Another, of course, a great ear exercise at every single level is transposition. Um, you know, and transposition is kind of interesting because depending on how you do it, it can be a real theory brain experience or it can be a real ear experience, yeah. right? And I think you want to be able to do a little right. bit of both, right? You want to be able to know the tune well enough that you right. can think about it and know the functions, but you also it's much more reliable and much more fun to be able to hear your way to that new key. Um, so transposition right. is one of those activities that never goes away. Um, I'll never forget, my, I, right. I'm a student of uh, the great Fred Hirsch. One of the things that he told me about his solo concerts is that he likes to not play a tune in the key he's going to play it in until he gets on stage. Because he wants wow. that key to be fresh when he gets on stage, which is yeah. so cool and also so ballsy, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> There's no. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's wow. I said I was gonna say, man, that sounds great in theory, but I don't that's, think I want to try that. That's how good <laughs> his ear is. That's how much he trusts Holy it. Moly. He's like, oh, if I can play this in these five other keys, I can definitely play it in this one key, wow. and it's gonna be fresh and surprising even to me. Isn't that cool? I just love that. Yeah, it's it's pretty phenomenal, um, right? That's 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 amazing. Ultimately, that's what we, we that's ultimately what we, we want. Yeah, we want to have that trust that we can get on stage and play any key, anytime, any tune. And I ain't at that level, but I'm working on it. You know. <laughs> you know, we live in a day and age now where there are, you know, anthologies of transcriptions. You can go out and purchase a, a collection of Bill Evans transcriptions or a collection yeah. of Oscar Peterson transcriptions. What value, if any, do you find in somebody studying transcriptions that they didn't transcribe? Yeah, I think there's a whole range of reasons to look at transcriptions, and I, I think it's all valid as long as it's you know as long as you're getting out of it what you intend to get out of it, right? You could correct just like we study classical scores, you can study right. the score of a Bill Evans transcription and figure out, oh, this is the substitution he's using, or, you know, oh, this is the kind of voicing that sounds like this. And I think that's, that's totally uh, valid. Um, if you're trying to train your ear, that's not the best way to go, right? If that's right. what it's doing. Um, but if you're just kind of curious and you want to gain some things, my, my big, um, so yeah, um, I think it all depends what you're trying to get out of it. 
my big uh, crusade with transcriptions is what happens after you play the transcription, analyze the transcription, is that you have to then bring those things into a bunch of tunes, right? If you discover right. that Bill Evans, I don't know, let's say he's using a sharp five to five resolution on a major seventh, then that's important. And then you need to go to every tune you learn <laughs> and you need to play it using that in every single place. So if you're playing on a right? You do it where you get to the major seventh chord. And that's, that's the exactly stuff that right. I see students not necessarily taking advantage of. They're checking the box of, oh, I did the transcription, I wrote it down, I learned it, uh, or maybe I learned it from a, you know, from a different source. Um, but then you need to adopt all, you know, the things that you love from that transcription and make that's it exactly, your own. That's exactly, well, now you're, you're talking about really, really getting to the gold, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's the real treasure. You know, if you, if you're just taking the transcription on the surface and trying to take a, you know, a line, a lick, if you will, and then drop kick it into some other tune that you're trying to play. I always tell students, well, good luck with that, right? <laughs> good luck. You know, what you're talking about is really kind of opening up the window inside of Bill Evans' mind, trying to see what he does, and as a result, extracting from you ideas that, that come from you then on the shoulders of Bill Evans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, my, my teacher in high school was the great Tamir Handelman. He's one of the best jazz pianists yeah. in L.A., just an incredible teacher, person, pianist. Um, and, you know, I, I remember that we would do transcriptions and he would say, okay, next week bring in three melodic, three harmonic, and three rhythmic ideas that you like from the transcription. Right. And I want to hear you apply them to tunes. Um, and I love that. I love that uh, format. Um, you know, because it's not just, okay, pick a lick and learn it in every key, which is valuable. <laughs> There's a place for that. Right. Just, I, I'm not saying never do that. Um, right. But that's going to be useful, like, you know, so such a slim amount of the time. Correct. Um, you know, it's like memorizing one line of poetry. It's like, okay, how much are you going to be able to deliver that line in context? It's probably yeah, not great that much. <laughs> yeah, great analogy. Uh, versus, you know, if you want to figure out what the syntax is, um, what's the grammar? And then, oh, okay, I can use that a bunch of places. I can use that same grammar all over the place. Um, right. And then I can become a poet instead of just somebody who quotes poetry. <laughs> Correct. Um, so, yeah, you Correct. can use that format of one melodic, one or three melodic, three harmonic, three rhythmic ideas, and then use those as a bouncing off place to yeah, expand great. exponentially from that transcription. Yes. Yeah, um, now there is value in just getting these transcriptions under your fingers because just like I, you know, I said earlier about learning the bebop melodies, you just need yeah, to right. feel for what it feels like to play jazz, and it might challenge you technically. Um, it might get your hands into some positions you weren't used to being in. There's a ton of value, um, and then when you play it along with the transcription, then you're working on your rhythm and time feel. Or sorry, when no you doubt. play it along with the original recording, is what I meant to say. You're working yes, on your rhythm right. and time feel. So. You know, there's value in every stage of this and in every part that you do with it. But I just hate right. seeing students miss that last step of really owning that material. Correct. Um, because that's so satisfying and it, it encourages so much valuable growth. Right. Um, if you were, you know, you teach, you, the, the students that you teach, primarily college level, correct? You teach yeah. younger children? Um, I, I have a few high school, I have one 13-year-old, you know, okay. uh, a little bit of a mix. So, 
So if you were taking somebody comes to you, regardless of what age they are, and you, like let's say they come from maybe a classical background, yeah. or they you know they played a you know kind of a traditional, they've had a traditional music lesson experience in learning how to play the piano, but now they want to they want to start developing some jazz skills. Yeah. What are some of the very first steps that you have them begin doing to make that transition into the into the jazz world? Great question. Um, so one of the first exercises that I do, uh, especially with people from a classical background, because usually they're very comfortable with scales, is I do what I call right. I just call it my scale exercise, my my world famous scale exercise, kind of as a joke. Um, and what I have them do uh, just to get them used to the idea of quote unquote improvising and I know that this isn't creative or engaging the ear at all but just to get them kind of their feet wet I have them play just consistent eighth notes with the scale um, but they're not allowed to play the scale in order um, or in any kind of a pattern so if they're playing the C major scale they'll play and I have them do it with a timer so you have to do it for one minute without stopping I know that this isn't jazz, it's not engaging their ear, but for me, the first thing I want to do is to break down those barriers between something that's written out and something that's improvised. And so here's taking yeah. this material they know, giving them very specific directions to get them playing something that's not written out, that's not completely right. um, pres prescribed right. to them. Um, so that's right. one of the first things that I'll, I'll do with them. Um, I. I try to get into voicings pretty early because usually um, what students want to do and what they really need to do is to play with a group. And the first thing they're going to need to know is, you know, of course, how, how do you form these basic kinds of chords, but then they're going to need to know some voicings and some two, five, ones. So I'll give them voicings and I'll give them those two comping patterns that I mentioned earlier and, you know, take some simple tunes that only have major two, five, ones, you know, tune up is a great one to start with, you know, that's not going to have any tricky half diminished or anything. And I get them just doing some simple comping, um, hopefully nice. with some some decent voicings. Um, right. A big thing. Uh, so then, probably from there, some of our first improvisation exercises will be with blues because, right? Blues. Right. Um, you know, there's a million things that you can bring to it, but uh, the blues scale is such a great place to start because they don't have to change scales every every chord. <laughs> so I'll have them do. You know, and usually I'll try to give them very specific phrasing. I'll have them do play two, rest two. On the blues. Right. Um, yes, then, that's good. Because otherwise, they do uh, you know some musical diarrhea. And it's... <laughs> so instead, I'll, I'll give them you know okay, you got two measures to play, and then you got to rest for two measures. And that's it's also very good to, to get that left hand incorporated because then once they get it with just the right hand, they can play that left hand comping in those two blank measures. So, yeah, and, and you're teach you're teaching them to play space. You yeah. know what I mean? Play space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another exercise, especially with uh, students who are, you know, from a classical background is I'll have them write what I call a dream solo. Um, mm. So that just like we talked about earlier with your paper practice, they're just separating out that, that those two elements of creating right. and performing. Because it's very intimidating right. to do both of those right. at the same time. Right. Um, so I'll have them write out some dream solos. And it's also a good opportunity to 
quote unquote correct or try to improve some element, right. elements of rhythm or form. Cause it's really hard to catch those things when you're just listening right. to an improvisation. You might say, well, you've been playing a lot of D flats on the F blues and they might say, no, I haven't. And then what do you do? <laughs> you say, well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you were. <laughs> um, Right. Um, or you might say you're starting all your phrases on downbeats and, and, you know, I need you to start some of your phrases on offbeats and they might not be able right. to make that adjustment. So if you have it all down there on paper, you can point out, okay, you know, this D flat, that's not part of the blues scale. And, you know, you're starting every single phrase right on beat one of bar one. So let's see if we can move that around a little bit. So um, right. those are a few of the first steps that I take with students. Um, but uh, yeah, the, it, I mean, every student is so different and, um, it's, it's tough. I don't, I don't have a formula that works, um, every well, time, you know, it's all, it's right. always slow going cause it's language learning. And I always tell other students, like, right. how long would you expect, you know, to learn, it take to learn how to speak French. It's like, well, don't learn, don't expect to learn to be a great improviser in one <laughs> semester, you know, don't expect to happen. get, to get to that level. You're, you know, you're really going to have to put in the time and it's a long process of a lot of dedication. Right. Um, That's right. Do you have any specific improvisation exercises that uh, apart from transcriptions, you know, apart from, you know, sp you know, scales or technique work, do you have any exercises that are geared toward developing improvisational lines, improvisational motion? Um, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to narrow down from there. I think all improvisation exercises deal with limitations, right? Um, yeah. Right, because improvisation by its nature is supposedly free. So any improvisation exercise is gonna be some series of limitations. And some examples right. of limitations that I think are really useful um, would be hit the third on every downbeat. Um, it would be uh, start every phrase with a leap of a six or a seven. Leaps are one of my big passions for young improvisers yeah. because they so often just keep their hands very closed. And leaps add right. expression and leaps add really important rhythm. So sometimes That's I'll say you point. have to start every phrase with a leap of more than a fifth. That could be an improvisation exercise. Um, it right. could be, uh, you know, like we talked about these simple rhythms and building off of simple rhythms. It could be using a chromatic enclosure in, you know, yes. into the, uh, into the downbeat of every measure. Um, it could be, uh, starting every phrase with a three, five, seven, nine arpeggio. Um, I mean, there's, right. there's a million kinds of limitations. Um, you know, if you're working on octatonic scales, every time you go to a dominant chord, I want you to use the octatonic scale. Um, right. And then we also, I also do a lot of solo scripting with my students. And what I mean by solo scripting is, you know, we'll have one phrase or one idea that will be like, okay, we know we're putting that in measures three and four, let's improvise around that. And we're going to hit that in measures three and four. Mm. Um, so that they get right. used to integrating some of the vocabulary that they've been learning with improvisation. Cause I find that students, um, like I say, my students who are really good box checkers learn that vocabulary and then have no idea how to use it. <laughs> um, right. can't really right. shift between improvising and then playing something a little bit more prepared. So it's like, okay, let's, you know, this is the hard part of the tune. We're going to put this here. Um, something else I'll do sometimes, especially with younger students is figure out hand positions and then have them improvise within hand positions. You know, harmony is moving yeah. really fast. Uh, you know, it's, it's always the end of ornithology that stumps students. Uh, has like...
you know, they're doing okay, they're doing okay. And then it's like, yeah, there. And I was like, forget it. So I teach them some hand positions. I say, okay, let's go. And then from there, okay, that's interesting. What a, you could go up or you could leap. Position. So that's a nice way, especially for some of those really tricky places. Um, every student can can find those hand positions pretty easily. And then you know the assignment is: can you come up with ten different melodies that you could make using those same yeah, yeah. hand positions? So those are a few ultimately, ideas. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, and ultimately it comes down to shapes and sounds, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I tell students all the time. Jazz, it's a study of shapes and sounds, and. Uh, you know, that's that's a beautiful illustration of that, what you just demonstrated there. It's awesome. It's tremendous. So, okay, look, we've covered a lot of ground today. Yes, we have. <laughs> I could, yeah, I, I could sit here and, like, do this for, like, six right, hours. Sure. <laughs> but you know what? Share with, you know, we've gone through this whole time together. But share with, take a second right now and share with the listeners your background. You're teaching right now. You're out in California, mm -hmm. right? And you're teaching at Fullerton? Fullerton College, that's right. Yeah, that's fantastic. How long have you been there? Uh, this is the fourth year, my fourth year. Wow. So what what led you to teaching? Um, great question. So, I, you know, I'd love to stand here and say that what led me to teaching was that I have some high-minded, you know, whatever. Um, but probably more than anything, it was financial necessity. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's not to say that I don't love teaching. And the more that I do it, right. the more I'm really interested in getting better at it and figuring out how to get right. to students. You know, it's fascinating to try to get students right. from the point where they, for example, can't improvise to the point where they do feel comfortable improvising. Um, right. And yeah, I've... Um, I'm trying to think. I also, I'm kind of a, a theory guy and a word guy, and it's really fascinating mm -hmm. to me to try to make some of these really complicated concepts as clear as possible. And right. how do I right. explain these really tricky uh, ethereal concepts, but make them actually, you know, worthwhile and uh, clear to a student who might not really, it might not be in their vocabulary to think about those things. So right. I, I just find it right. full of interesting, um, interesting problems to solve. Uh, that, that's what, that's yes, what yes. I love about it. And of course, I love the people, you know, I love meeting yes. students, hopefully yes, having indeed. a positive impact in their lives. Absolutely. Um, you've done, you're, you're an author. You've done, you've, you've produced a lot of educational content material, yeah. right? At Hal Leonard. Yeah. Talk a little bit about this. And you, you, you have a relatively new book out, right? Yeah. On solo piano. Yeah. Um, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about so, that. So um, I've, I've kind of stumbled uh, unintentionally into the piano teacher, piano pedagogy world, which is really interesting. Um, and the, the, actually, the way that I got into it is that I got hired to review jazz materials for um, Clogger Companion, which is now called The Piano Magazine. And so for about, I don't know, seven or eight years, all of the jazz piano materials came across my desk, and some are good and some are not so good. Um, but very few are actually written by real jazz pianists, and very few of them do a good <laughs> job of um, pointing students towards the real things, which, you know, I consider the recordings are the real things as much as... I want everybody to buy my books and spend money. Um, 
I want all of my books to point towards the oral learning that you have to do through jazz. Because you can't learn jazz right. through a book. And so my mission Correct. with all my educational materials is A, to give students something that's written by a real jazz pianist and has real content that's developed from the masters. Right. Um, and right. secondly, to have that pointing them, whether it's just through the title of a tune having to do with Thelonious Monk or some of my uh, materials list recordings and, um, you know, improvisation exercises that students can do to really get them towards the real in information. Um, but I am particularly proud. It was my uh, quarantine passion project to write this book, playing solo jazz piano, um, which uh, is just kind of, it was a massive project. And it's basically everything that I know about, pian about solo piano playing, which is my, one of my favorite things as, a, as an introvert I, um, and as somebody just fascinated with the instrument of the piano um, to figure out everything right. you could do um, with this art form. And um, there's no other book that I'm aware of that's really like it. And it covers everything. There's four chapters about stride piano. I love stride piano. It starts with four chapters of everything that I'm aware that you could do with stride piano. Um, it gets yeah, into, um, you know, traditional swing techniques. It gets into shared hand voicings and what you could do with those. There's four chapters about ballad playing and different ballad styles. And then there's four chapters about modern techniques um, among them perpetual motion, uh, counterpoint, how do you learn how to improvise with counterpoint, you know, a full solo piano arrangement, uh, if you're a fan of uh, Brad Meldau, um, incorporating classical right. music techniques, you know, if you want to improvise something that sounds like Debussy, but do it on autumn leaves, how would you go about doing that? Um, so it's just is the yeah. broad spectrum of everything that I love and I've studied. Um, and I was lucky enough to have Fred Hirsch write the introduction uh, to the book. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm really proud of it. And uh, yeah, so that's available on my website. And yeah. Amazon. Yeah. And at your website, I understand that it's, uh, you, you autograph. Uh, that, is, that is true. And if, if you're debating, yeah. by, well, by the way, uh, I keep much more to the profit. If you buy from my website, than if you buy from Amazon, <laughs> Jeff Bezos gets about 40% of the profit. So, you know, if you're deciding, hopefully the autograph would sway you, but you know, if you want to support, then you know, here, here hey man, I, I'm gonna buy. Yeah, I'm gonna buy a copy from your website, man. I want the autograph. <laughs> I want the autographed book, man. So, but you know, solo piano playing. First of all, solo piano playing is not easy. Yes, it's not. No, I know? usually solo jazz. I, I tell my students, um, first two years, we're not really gonna get into. Uh, this is my college students. First two years, we're not really gonna get into yeah. solo piano playing because you have to have such a solid background. Um, so not That's until you're correct. a junior in college, usually, of, of course, you know, I make exceptions, yeah. but yeah, you do have to know so much to be a good solo pianist. Oh my gosh. Right. That that's yeah. That's to me that solo jazz piano playing. That's the tip of the mountain there, man. That's like, that's, it's fantastic. And the other thing is there's not a lot of, there's just not a lot of literature out there on how to play, how to approach solo jazz yeah. piano. So when I saw your book, I thought, fantastic. Somebody's actually addressing this topic. Yeah. And I think there's not that much about it because there's not one way to do it. I mean, there, of course, there's not one way to play any kind of right. jazz piano, but like there's so right. many different traditions, you know, um, right. uh, it's, it's kind of intimidating. And I learned so much and it clarified my teaching so much to write the book um, and to, you know, go and find examples of different uh, artists playing styles in different ways. Um, so hopefully it's a, a contribution that people appreciate. Um, and like I said, it was my passion project. As soon as 
uh, all the tours that I was going to do shut down during quarantine. It's like, okay, I got to do something that makes me feel good. So um, I wrote this book and like I said, I'm really proud of it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so, okay. If you had to, and I know this is an impossible question to answer, okay. but if you had to, who, who is your favorite solo jazz pianist? That, who is your favorite? Gosh, you're a jerk. <laughs> what a question. I know it, man. Uh, I, I'm total jerk. So, so right? I'm, I'm a student of Fred Hirsch, and Fred has uh, innovated in just incredible ways in terms of the way that he plays solo piano. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, it feels strange to choose a modern person because any modern person standing on the shoulders, right. I'm sure. If Fred were here, he would say, forget me, like, listen to Thelonious Monk, listen to Hank Jones, listen to you know, the 11, right. listen to all of those greats. Right. Um, you know, uh, the stuff that Brad Maldow does is mind blowing. Mm-hmm. His new, like his big box right. set of 10 years solo live is just absolutely yeah. astounding. Um, and I, I discovered some mm-hmm. new pianists, uh, well, you know, p- people who I hadn't checked out quite as much, um, people like Earl Hines, um, God, I'm blanking on. No, Earl um, Hines. Errol Garner, you know, I was aware of him, but I'd never really checked out the solo literature and like, man, it's, it's deep and it's, there's so, it's so good. Um, so the, the list just kind of goes on and on. Um, but yeah, modern guys, Fred, Brad, Keith Jarrett is obviously just a complete freak. Um, yes, you'll right. see the Thelonious Monk poster right behind me. Monk is, is certainly right. essential. Bill Evans obviously, you know, just contributed hugely uh, to the solo piano tradition. I'm, I'm personally just a huge sucker for Hank Jones. I think he's one of the, got one of the best touches of any pianist um, ever. So those yeah. are some of the guys who, you know, just personally really move me. Yeah, um, all great players. You know, my I think if I had to pick a gentleman that I absolutely am always blown away with his playing, was Dave was yeah, Dave McKenna? I, I learned a lot more about Dave McKenna while, write, while writing the book because so many people he had such a unique style, right? And, and so many people said oh, he's yeah, something he's amazing. Seems to have that third hand, right? <laughs> he sure does, right? It's you know, he he plays solo piano and you swear there's a rhythm section with him and you go wait a minute, no, wait a minute, <laughs> it's just him. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and so. I'm a big Oscar Peterson head too. He was the one who really got me into jazz. And, his solo stuff, I mean, God dang. But I mean, obviously the, the technique is there, right? you know, and at a certain point you had to put that aside, but then the musicality on top of the technique is just stunning. And the pianism, I mean, that guy could play with a feather, like touch and the balance. And I really grew to appreciate his pedaling. On another level, his pedaling is so yeah. detailed and nuanced. And, um, yeah. Did you, ever, did you ever see I him in concert? Him. No. Did you ever see him? Yeah. I got to see him one time, and of all places, it was at the University of okay. Iowa. And he played solo. He came out and did a solo piano concert there at the University of Iowa, and he played literally solo piano for three hours. That's hard. And it was. <laughs> oh, can That's you, really I mean, tough. His first set was about a, his first set was about an hour and a half. He took a little break and he came out and he played another set for an hour and a half. Yeah, that's that's wild. And I'll never forget it. he he did he started on a a Duke Ellington he started on a started playing Duke Ellington's Duke Ellington tunes and it ended up being a thirty minute medley <laughs> of Duke Ellington tunes, just going from one to the next to the next yeah, to the next. He was a freak in every 
ever since he was a freak. all the best senses. And it might actually interest your listeners or, or yourself. Um, as part of that, the project with the book, I actually compiled on my website what I'm pretty sure is the most complete list of solo piano recordings um, anywhere in the world. Uh, so uh, on, on my wow. website, you can click. It says solo piano albums list or something. Um, I think there's like over 800 different recordings there. So if you're looking, uh, if you're ever looking for something, wow. um, I, I think it's the, I think it's the most complete list on the internet. Um, yeah, and your website address is pretty straightforward, yeah, right? Jeremysiskin.com. You spell it Jeremy S is kind. Dot com. Jeremy S is kind. <laughs> I like it, man. That's awesome. So, Jeremy, it's been a thrill, man. It's, it's been awesome to get to, to meet you and to spend some time with you and tapping into your mind and the way you think and approach the art. It's fantastic. You're, you're a phenomenal player. I enjoy your music. Folks, I encourage everybody to go out to just go out to Google and, and Google Jeremy and check out some recordings out there of him playing. You are in for a treat. And also check out his book, that solo solo piano playing book that you can get at his website. I highly recommend that. I'm, I'm going to finish out here today and I'm going to oh, buy me nice. a copy. So yeah. So Jeremy, thank you so much. If you are ever in the Dallas area, please let me know. Love to get together with you, man. We'll go out and paint the town red and eat and play some, yeah. And play some jazz piano, man. Count, count me in. Count me in. <laughs> right. It's been a thrill. Let's do a part two sometime. All right, brother. <laughs> That yeah, we will, man. For absolutely for sure. So Jeremy, thanks so much, man. It's, Thank it's been you. a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Well, I hope you have found this Jazz Piano Skills podcast with special guest Jeremy Siskin to be insightful and of course beneficial. Don't forget, if you are a Jazz Piano Skills member, I will see you online Thursday evening at the Jazz Piano Skills Masterclass, 8 p.m. Central Time to discuss this podcast episode with Jeremy Siskin in greater detail. <laughs> so much to unpack. And to answer any questions that you may have about the study of jazz in general. As always, you can reach me by phone at 972-380-8050, extension 211, by email, drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com. That's drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com or by SpeakPipe, found on the Jazz Piano Skills website, in the educational podcast packets, and the Jazz Piano Skills courses. Well, that's it for now. And until next week, enjoy the journey, and most of all, have fun as you discover, learn, and play jazz piano.